Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers, and welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 78, coming to you still from Jakarta, Indonesia. My guest today is Kit. She works in international development, and this is unfortunately a poignant time that she joins the podcast for a conversation because just two days ago, there was a 7.5 magnitude earthquake that hit the island of Sulawesi. And then there was a subsequent tsunami. And the brunt of that tsunami hit the crowded city of Palu. Right now, um, there's still obviously a really large recovery effort happening. But the death toll as of this point is over 800. And that is likely to rise. So... You heard about the earthquakes in Lombok um, in early August. I covered that just briefly in the very minor experiences that I had in regards to those. But Kit gave of her time and her services, and she volunteered in uh, disaster response for the Red Cross in Lombok. So she, in this episode, talks about those experiences She's also obviously well-educated in disaster response in general and in some of the specific issues that Indonesia has in responding to disasters. It seems as if the frequency of natural disasters around the world is growing and potentially could keep growing with global climate change. So I think that uh, you could learn a lot from this episode from Kit and if you check the show notes for this episode, you will find a direct link to the Red Cross, the Indonesian branch of the Red Cross. And I also included an article that Bustle put out that compiles a series of links where you can donate and you can assist for the people in Sulawesi. So please check those out. Um, I would say check out the Patreon, but we'll skip the Patreon for this episode. Instead, if you were considering donating to the Patreon, please instead donate that money to the relief funds for Sulawesi. Instead of the normal interlude music for this episode, I'm going to play you a pretty little jam by Enda and Ressa. That is Untuk Dikenang. And that will play you directly into the conversation with Kit. Feel 
Thank you, Kit, for doing this. Appreciate you. I appreciate you too. <laughs> so I think this is um, kind of a poignant time. We were just talking about how, I guess last night we, you got the news or we all got the news around the same time that an earthquake had happened and then subsequently a really bad tsunami happened in Sulawesi. Yep. And um, I guess through Chitra, who's been on here before, I learned that you had done some work through the Red Cross uh, in Lombok. So... I'd love to talk about that, but maybe we'll sort of establish you as a person sure. before that. Um, you grew up in Australia? Yeah, so my history and background is a little bit, it's a little bit all over the place, I guess. I was born in Bangkok in Thailand and yeah, I lived in a village with my grandmother for the first few years of my life. Hmm. Um, then moved over to Indonesia when I was a child, still with my parents, because my dad works, work, works in development. So yeah, like I guess my introduction to Indonesia was when I was about five or six years old. We were living in rural, like this small village in the north of Sumatra oh, wow. with, uh, with a mosque in front of our house with geese and turkeys in the backyard. No yeah, like not a lot of friends around our age and um, moved to East Timor after. No way. Two years, yeah, it was during the Indonesian occupation still. So, huh. yeah, so that was like, the, I guess, my childhood. Then we moved around again to, I think, back to Thailand for a bit before the Solomon Islands in Honiara. And then we, then we left because it got really crazy politically. Wow. And then over to Vietnam, and then to Thailand again, and then finally back to Australia. Um, I'd spent about you know, a year or two as a child there too, and, but probably came back for university where it's been my home for the past 11, 12 years. Wow. But, um, but yeah, like I've been living 
in Indonesia since 2016 on and off as well. So, yeah, I guess Indonesia is like my cousin country in a way. <laughs> Did you move around according to where your father was working in development? Yes, um, definitely. The contract was normally around two years we'd move around. So as, as a kid, I learned to adjust to different cultures very quickly. And, you know, I was always... Um, I was always a little bit curious about different cultures and communities and people and things. But at the same time, when, when you're so small and you have to move around different schools and start all over again, say mm. goodbye to your best friends as a kid, it gets hard. But as you go up, grow up, I mean, you learn to, to appreciate all those connections you've made in the past because your friends are all over the world and... Yeah, I think it really shapes you if you're if people are able to move around and get that kind of opportunity. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely a lot of um, positives for sure. Am I correct in thinking that you kind of followed in his footsteps, right? Like you sort of <laughs> went in the development field. Yes. So there's um there's a few there's a few of us siblings, and my father has said like, oh, kids, you know, so you're the only one who's doing yeah. development work and I think you're pioneering in this family you're doing something really good and I'm like even more than me I'm like come on dad you are you are in you're like the development king you're an engineer you you totally inspired me and and um but he's like yeah but I'm doing like I'm working for the Asian Development Bank now like what you're doing with the Red Cross and even though it's on a voluntary basis it's really amazing rah 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 I'm like that's really wonderful to hear but I'm still starting my career, and yeah, it's going good so far, I think. Yeah, so within, I guess, um, maybe we can define that for people, like within the realm of development, like you were mentioning, like there, there's economic development, right? Um, yes. Like something like, I guess the biggest would be the World Bank. Uh, well, like what specifically are you referring to in terms of like the development of a country? Like what would you want to be working in? Me? Um, yeah. My future career objectives, I guess. I've always had a strong passion for uh, international development, um, developing issues in Southeast Asia. I think maybe because I'm sure, like my upbringing totally was influenced yeah. to that, going around different different places in the world. And and even though, and I, and I did notice this as a kid, like didn't it didn't matter where I was. But poverty still look the same. Doesn't matter what skin color you are, what language you speak, how you dress. Poverty is the same, more or less, of course, with different characteristics. And um, and me being a big softie in that way, like I can't handle it. If I see old people in the street begging, it's just like, I don't know. I th I think that's just heartbreaking and unfair. There's a lot of inequality, but um, development. For me, I had a lot of interest to get into this field, but I was confused about which specific area, because in this world, there's so much you can do. There's, what, I mean, there's, seriously, like, I can't even name them all, but there's, like, edu development for education, for healthcare, for infrastructure, for the environment. And I went back to study as a mature age student when I was 27 years old. I really wanted to get into international studies, but I also applied for nursing and teaching and social work because um, I wasn't sure. But then I finally got into international studies because, uh, because I wanted the knowledge. And after about a year and a half into my course, I decided to <laughs> pursue in 
knowledge about uh, disaster risk management mm. against natural disasters. And that's when it's, that was my wow factor, Tim. I, I realized for the first time, like I'd been looking for a niche, an area in international development. I was so confused about where I belonged because I cared about so many different issues. And this is the first time I found a, a sector in international development that involves everything. For, for international development, sustainability of all the pillars, to raise all the pillars is really, really, really crucial. And if we're talking about DIR, disaster risk reduction, um, I find that this is a completely relevant theme all over the world. Um, we've got serious issues of climate change happening, affecting the globe differently in different ways. And if, if we want to change and help eradicate certain issues, I think that you can't just apply an old school development mentality of, okay, identifying an issue and then pouring all the resources and funds into a project just to fix it right now. You can't think that way anymore because we've got all these other complicated like situations, um, you know, at play, like climate change. You need to, we need to start thinking of the risk, the certain risk of communities are uh, dealing with. Indonesia is a great example for that. You know, you need to think ahead, like 15, 20 years, 50 years, what's it going to look like? Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think that's super tricky. Um, like you said, with climate change, um, the frequency of natural disasters appears to be at a much greater rate. I mean, even when the earthquakes in Lombok happened, I remember like daily we would check online and um, there were a bunch of smaller ones too. So there were like yeah. seven straight days in which earthquakes were happening. And if you have a lot of places that have developed along um, or at sea level, and now you're having more frequency of quakes, uh, which can lead to tsunamis, mm -hmm. uh, like, I don't know if this is too much of a big picture question, but to me, you would almost have to like redevelop the physical infrastructure of, of, of cities and towns. Um, but to me, I would think that's a difficult thing to do, like while those things are happening, you know, because that's going to take quite a lot of time, huh? For sure. Um, the first thing that comes to mind when you, you started mentioning this, like how do you rebuild strong communities, basically, yeah. when there's still so much destruction um, from such an immediate impact already? Well, I think for a country like Indonesia, the challenge, oh, it's so many, it's so hard, isn't it? But then if you look at Japan, we can learn a lot from this country. They experienced something very similar to the Lombok earthquakes recent, like that happened recently. Yeah. I'm not sure what date, but um, they had also experienced a lot of uh, earthquakes that had literally flattened so many communities in Japan, probably, I think, on a larger scale than what just happened. And so what the country did was they, they reprogrammed their uh, building codes, uh -huh. built it super strong, so it's more earthquake resilient. Not only have they done that, every year now, um, yeah, like disaster response, um, evacuation procedures, yeah, like risk reduction me methods have been in, in, like have been drilled into the Japanese mm. community. And I think, and you, you can see that, like recently there was this crazy storm that happened, right? It was so, the impact was so so little compared to Lombok. 
So yeah, I'm sort of asking you some some hard questions that you know <laughs> I, I appreciate you and you're knocking them out, but like I'm just thinking in my head like would that maybe be harder to do in Indonesia just because of sort of like the scale of what you're dealing with in terms of like 13,000 islands and coordinating that effort across the whole country, I would assume would be a pretty monumental task. Indonesia is an interesting country to to study about natural disasters. It's a country with at least 17,000 islands. 17,000. Yeah, at least 300 languages, if not like ugh, exceeding 800 languages easy. Right. You know? like, um, all right, so in terms of disaster management, uh, I mean, if we're looking at this question, we have to kind of strip back. So Indonesia is an interesting country when it comes to risk management and disaster management because they, it's a country that sits along very, very active fault lines. And so, well, I think Indonesia has been forced to scale up its, its disaster management structure and policies um, I think it all started from the really uh, crazy disaster, like the Indian tsunami that happened in 2004. It hit a lot of countries in Southeast Asia and especially Aceh the most. So mm. since then, the government has um, implemented a law, uh, specifically law number 24 from 2007. So what that means is all these states and provinces in the country has to implement this law and basically figure out disaster management and risk reduction strategies for their community. Um, and I think that's quite advanced for a country to be doing something like this, you know. And the other really interesting thing about Indonesia as well, like it, it, it also created uh, a law in 2014, namely to that number 20, sorry, number six. And what that means is Indonesia now a decentralized country, all the budget isn't just controlled in Jakarta anymore. It's mm. sort of trickled down to all the provinces and states. And when you think about disaster management and you think about the budgets that, that's been poured down and distributed into different areas, when you have a law that says, right, every place needs to figure out their disaster management strategy, and then you have a second law that says, right, now every local government with your budget, you have to allocate some funds towards disaster reduction. Having these two together is actually super powerful because it forces people to, well, local governments to think and to allocate their funds responsibly, uh, whether it's like fixing infrastructure, whether it's, you know, disaster risk reduction education for schools. Like this is the things that they need to be doing in order to build the capacity of the local community. Um, in Java, you can see this happening. You can see that, you know, a response since the Marapi uh, eruption in 2010, the response was actually very good. Mm. The disaster impact was huge, but um, recover, response and recovery is, well, was actually quite impressive compared to, let's say, Sinabong. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of the Sinabong volcano that erupted about eight years ago. Mm -mm. This volcano uh, is called Sinabong in Karu residence in North Sumatra. It had been dormant for 400 years. Whoa. Woke up eight years ago, has not stopped erupting since. However, if you compare it with other areas in Indonesia, it's received very little um, attention. So I've looked into this myself, like comparing this with the Aceh. Aceh is also in Sumatra. How come Aceh received a lot more attention? 
Similar to Jogja, Aceh is also a special region that's really, really highly, like, uh, I think, rich and, like, there's a lot of oil reserves there. Whereas in Karu, I think it's mostly agricultural land. And so it was very interesting. I mean, for me, like, when a disaster strikes, it's important for people to be prepared. Some countries are very lucky. They don't have to think about the different types of risk, whether it's man-made or nat natural. Like, they don't have to really instill that into their daily lives and think, okay, right, well, should, should, our, should our community or family prepare for something to, you know, like, should we prepare if something, if something were to happen right now without us, you know, expecting it to? And Indonesia, you have to think about that. Sort of on that topic of, of media exposure and the amount of um, attention that a disaster receives, I thought that was really interesting, and we'll get into all the Lombok stuff, but uh, the second quake happened when I was in Bali. And so what I did, like, right away, I went online to see, like, uh, like what magnitude, where is there a tsunami warning? And you started seeing all these tweets from, like, uh, celebrities and things like that yeah. who were staying in, in, in Bali, like Chrissy Teigen and people like that. And I felt like, and, and a lot of the initial news reports from the States was Quake Rocks Bali, Quake Rocks Bali. It was like, yeah, like, the, the tremors and the aftershocks rocked Bali and, like, there, there was some degree of damage, but nothing like what happened in Lombok. And I just assumed it was because there were many more Westerners. And, oh, we, we, have a, we have a guest outside. Um, I just assumed it was because, like, there are many more Westerners and because of that celebrity attention and stuff like that, that mm. people unfortunately cared more because of that. Like, would do you have any sort of inclination as to why, like, that, um, that volcano received... Uh, less a lesser amount of attention than which volcano in Karu, in Karu and North yeah Africa? so like um, I think there's many factors okay so on on your question of why did the Sinabung volcano receive far less attention and the response a lot slower mm. I think this is a very very unique situation um, it's it could arguably be one of the longest uh, occurring disasters in history right now actually. Um, it's still ongoing. It's been eight years. Not many people know about it around the world. But um, even in Indonesia, I've spoken to some people about it and people aren't aware. But why? The question is... Exactly, why? yeah. Well, I think we are talking about these laws before. And yes, all the states, all the local governments should implement these laws, right? But this is still not happening across, across Indonesia. I think maybe because, you know, like... Maybe there's a mixture of lack of capacity. I mean, Java's got, you know, you've got Jakarta here. There's so many NGOs. There's, there's a lot of active organizations. And you know, then you look at, like, Sumatra. Sumatra's huge. You know, Aceh's quite active. Sumatra's more of, like... I'm oh, sorry, the Cairo resident... Not resident. Cairo, like, um, province is very... Yeah, it's more rural. It's more mm. agricultural farmlands. And the other thing is... When you look at a disaster impact, for example, a tsunami, you see the impact, it happens, and there is a line, a chain of events that happens. So impact, response, recovery, reconstruction, resettlement, etc., etc. But when you're looking at the Sinabung volcano situation, ongoing, it's very confusing 
You know what I mean? It's very, it's not, it doesn't happen in a linear way. So I think initially, of course, there was like NGOs and like um, response that came in and tried to help. There was, I think, between like six and nine internally displaced camps as a result of this volcano. But yeah, yeah, there were like some great initiatives going in, but then they just one by one like pulled back and then it's just happened so long and people, it's a messy situation. So people don't know what to do and, yeah. you know, and the funds, we're talking about the laws and that's what I mean. Like having laws implemented in a disaster country is so important. Like law, the conversation of policy and laws can get really, really dry and boring, but it actually is the thing that forces money to move and yeah. to, to, to supply and implement great educational programs, great like infrastructure, you know, innovations, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I mean? Like it's all interlinked. So is that sort of... Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking too that uh, sort of to that point with the frequency of these things happening, it's sort of like the next thing happens before the first thing was ever really fixed. So, yeah. I mean, like even in the States right now, a hurricane will come through. And since I've been traveling, we had a really bad hurricane. And then like a week later, you're on to the next thing. Unfortunately, in the States, it's like a week later, you hear about like the next mass shooting or whatever the crazy mm. thing that's happening is. But yeah, like, you know, since I've been out here, there was, um, I think, two typhoons that came through, uh, at least part of the Philippines and into Japan. So it's like, yeah, the first thing happened and was devastating and you haven't uh, recreated that infrastructure and fixed things and gotten everything up and running before the next thing happens that grabs like international attention. Um, exactly. Yeah, man, it's, uh, it's devastating. For sure, for sure. So I, I do want to talk about uh, Lombok. Mm-hmm. Um, again, the only experience I had in it was just really feeling like tremors and aftershocks. The first, uh, we were on Gili T and the second was in Bali. The first thing that, that comes to my mind though is that, like I mentioned, I went online to, to try to find information. And I, I don't remember the official um, like seismology organization within Indonesia, but there, there's an official organization that puts out, like, this was the magnitude quake, this is the area affected, and mm-hmm. if there's a tsunami warning or not. And they right away said, no tsunami warning. Like, I was, I was in a restaurant, we ran out, saw that, it was like, okay, can sit here, can eat, like, we'll be okay. But then all these, in, like, American news sources and other international news sources said, literally, tsunami imminent. Like, quake rocks Bali, which again, like, quake, you yeah. were, re- honestly, the media was reading Chrissy Tegan's tweets. Like she was the first one to have information out there. And that's, it was interesting to see articles in real time pop up based around people's tweets. So I would imagine it's difficult in that regard, uh, initially for people who are affected by natural disasters in areas to, un- like, to get the accurate information about what exactly is happening. I don't know if you have any experience with people- that. So what's your question? Sorry. It's not really a question. It's more just like, uh, yeah, maybe. How like how do you have, with everybody's access to social media and our ability to put out our own news and everything like that? Like, how do you have one source as like follow this source of information? Like, is there one place that people here in Indonesia can go to get that accurate information? Um, yes, there is actually. <laughs> <laughs> there is. I would suggest. Um, I think most people living in Indonesia are aware of this. Um, but for everyone else who are coming into Indonesia, be, be, be very mindful that 
it's a very beautiful country. Don't be scared. It's yeah. incredible, incredibly, yeah, diverse country in so many different ways. But yes, it's also a special country in a way that it does receive some, you know, disaster warnings here and there. And quite often, it's just a little warning and then it goes away. <laughs> but definitely download maybe this app called Info BMKG. So BMKG is the Indonesian Mete Meteorology, Climatology and Geophysics Agency of the country. So they are pretty much a government agency and they will have up-to-date information and we'll be putting out like daily release of any potential like earthquakes or tsunamis or crazy wind or anything like that, floods, that's where you want to go. Yes, it is in Indonesian, but there is a little, you know, you can easily just click on the translation tab and it will, yeah, translate into English. So I would recommend getting onto that, download the app as well. Mm. Yeah. So quake happens, well, multiple quakes happen in Lombok. Uh, I think most people's reaction after that are, I need to get as far away from this as possible. But then there are the people who do very heroic things like, okay, I'm going to go into that area because there are people who need help. Um, there's lots of work to do. Yep. So in, in those initial days, were you already volunteering with the Red Cross or were you like, hey, this is something that's impacted a place that's you know, close to my heart. It's here in Indonesia. Um, what was like the thought process like in terms of I need to go there and help people? I was already involved and uh, volunteering with the Indonesian Red Cross, um, known as Balang Mera Indonesia, or abbreviated as uh, PMI here. So I had um, already, yeah, started my, my volunteer experience with them in Jakarta. Um, it was very early on, actually. It was only like uh, within the first month oh, wow. of my time at the office. But um, yeah, when it happened, I had the opportunity to join the emergency response with the team that, uh, that was in Lombok. I had, the reason I was, able, I was able to join as well is because I had knowledge on disaster management before and I had been in a disaster zone before in the Middle East, in Palestine. Oh, really? Um, and so like, and yeah, like, I know like it sounds crazy, like, a an earthquake happens and literally flattens many, 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 many communities, large areas. Most people want to get the hell out of there, but we go in. Um, yeah, it was very, it was a very eye-opening experience for sure. This is a bit of an aside, but just because I'm really interested in what you just said, um, what specifically were you doing um, in terms of relief in Palestine? Oh, it was actually just um, helping building, like, school, like, a, a garden or, like, very minor. Okay. Like, you know, helping the kids sort of thing. But it was more like observing. I was just in, uh, traveling around Europe and I wanted to see, in, in my quest to, like, learn about the world, yeah. I just sort of <laughs> hopped over to this country and that country a bit because, yeah, just as an eye-opener thing. Okay. Yeah. That's so all. when you get to Lombok, what, like, what are you seeing? What did, what's the experience like there? To, in Lombok? Yeah. It was... Where do you even start? Mm. Just... I guess you... I mean, I guess I can only start from the beginning. Hey, like, you fly into the airport and there's still lots of people, even, like, 
sleeping outside, outdoors. Like most of the homes are still intact, but people are still really scared. I remember like talking to our driver and asking him the updates and what was going on. He's like, he's like, well, the communities around there are actually okay, but they're all really scared that their homes will crumble. So as you drive up up further north, you get into Matsuram on the the sort of coast, up the coast, right, and on the west coast, and you start to see more and more like effects from the earthquake, well, like such as more like from small cracks in the buildings to larger cracks, to parts of the home slowly, you know, just slightly crumbled to completely pancaked. It's just, it was really surreal. It was really, really surreal. Like, I, I don't know, I, I'm still trying to probably process all of this mm. myself, Tim, but, um, and then we entered like the deep north in Kayangan district, and, um, arrived at the Red Cross post. Um, and yeah, it was, it, was, it was a full-on operation that was set up, like emergency response. And that looks like uh, providing medical care, providing food, water, shelter, those types of things? So, the, okay, so Red Cross response here, they, at that time, it was during the emergency response. So it was about providing emergency shelter. Um, there was a logistics team um, distributing med- medicine, top, you know, like, just the basic needs, food, some food, yes, but that wasn't the, I think other, other organizations were organizing food, like maybe, the, okay, so there was a strong military presence there, BNPB presence, the, you know, Indonesia's National Disaster Management Authority was there, um, and PMI, the Indonesian Red Cross, these are the main three presence in the North Lombok area that I saw, no tourists, um, very, very rural area. And so when you mentioned before about how like when the earthquakes happened, a celebrity tweaked all these things and there was lots of hype. I guess, you know, social media can be seen, it, social media is really powerful, isn't it? But I, I found it very interesting because what I saw in the news was like, there are three Gili islands yeah. off of Lombok and they're, you know, they're quite famous for tourist islands and beautiful islands. Um, but then I started seeing in the news how it was the Lombok earthquakes was getting labelled internationally as you know the tourist island, yeah. And I started think, thinking like, popular tourist island, it's yeah, said, and yeah. I, and I thought and I thought that's absurd. Uh-huh. Lombok is huge, right? And it's mostly locals. We were thinking the it's exact very, same thing, yeah. and it's mostly locals. And you know what? Like, yeah, it's awful. Like the Gillies were here and they were hit bad. Yeah. But and you can't compare suffering to suffering. Suffering is suffering, and earthquake impacts will be awful anywhere, but if you're talking about like categorizing a whole disaster impact and labeling as a tourist island, that is misleading information. Especially, It's the rural community that got hit the worst. That's where the lives, people were crushed under their homes. You know, these were the local people. Yeah. uh, Especially when, uh, like you said, suffering is suffering. In the the case of a death, a death is a death. But the long-term effects of these types of disasters are going to be the people that live there. Because, yeah, popular tourist island, a tourist does not live there. A tourist has the ability to get up and leave and go back home. Whereas the people, like, you know, Giliti has many local people who live there and work there. And now Mm. they are, you know, the ones who are going to feel those effects long-term. Yeah, exactly. 
But I mean, you might have already seen as well, like there's some great initiatives happening with fundraising, lots of money, money getting raised to help the emergency response. And I think this is great. Mm. However, um, I did see that Indonesia received a little bit of negative uh, comments in the, in the press in the immediate aftermath of, this, of, of the earthquake about like why, why, is, why is the country not declaring this disaster as a national disaster yet? Why are they not opening the doors up to other governments' help and NGO, rah, 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 like why can't we go in and help? Well, there is a reason for that. Um, I think if a disaster were to happen anywhere in the world, you, you may agree or disagree, but I think it makes most sense where the local people and the local government respond first, right? And for a country like Indonesia that's established all these like disaster management, you know, steps in the past, personally, from what I can only comment from what I have seen. And I remember at the off when I was at the office, the earthquakes hit. Yeah, the first one hit and then the second one was really bad, right? Mm. That day, people were already mobilizing teams out, at least from the Red Cross. Everyone within 24 hours, people were on planes and on the ground, setting up the tents already. If you ask me, that's pretty impressive. That's because, that's because Indonesia, like the Red Cross is its own independent organization. They work with, you know, they're Indonesia's largest humanitarian movement, but they also support, you know, the development goals of the government too. And one of those is making sure people are safe from disasters. So before disasters strike, these, um, you know, these guys and these organizations with, with this capacity would go in into the communities in Lombok. They already, had, they, already, uh, they already have their connections in the communities in Lombok. So it makes more sense when you allow the guys, the local guys to go in there first and respond to a disaster. It makes sense because they have access to the local communities and the village chief um, in a country like Indonesia, like there are communities on the ground already who have, you know, have been training, have been tra doing workshops and they've already, the conversations already begun before the earthquake started. And so for Lombok, I know that with Red Cross, they already had their, their, their connections on the ground. So when it happened, when the earthquake uh, yeah, occurred, Red Cross were able to go in there and con um, leverage their, their, their contacts. Um, and you mentioned earlier, Tim, about like the society of you know, the community response. And this is exactly about that. Your neighbors, your neighbors will know like who needs help. You know, like next door, like who's who's most vulnerable? Who are you gonna check on? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So that's that's on that sort of like notion and mentality. That's how the, op the humanitarian response would work on the ground. Um, assessments are important. So, I've had friends who have asked me, "All right, so Australia is ready to go in there now. Mm. Why is it taking so long? It's been a month. It's." It's a patient, frustrating, like, waiting game, but it's something that you just, it's unfortunate, but yeah, you just have to wait, you know what I mean? Like, the impact is so great. And the assessments are still continuing right now. We're going into two months. And it makes sense, if you think about it, like, all right, Lombok, crazy earthquake happens. The government, NGO initiatives 
on the ground. They're trying to figure it out. They're trying to like use their resources, find the gap, finding assessments. And I, f I feel like for the international community, you know, we need to respect this and wait for the, for the results. And then when the results come out, it's much more strategic and it's logical, it's cleaner, it's, it's less confusing. Um, yeah, and much more productive that, that, that way. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's funny. I mean, we would have to get into the psychology of people and, uh, you know, I, I don't think I can do that so well. But unfortunately, my context for a lot of disasters in the U.S., again, is sort of man-made. Like, we've had a real problem in recent years with mass shootings, right? And initially, the first response you often see is, like, who's to blame for this? Like, who's to blame for what went wrong? Um, and I think, that, I don't know, there's something ingrained in our psychology where we feel like we need sort of justice in a situation when we've lost people. And I think that that can be the same thing. It's like, you know, 400 people died. Well, what could have been done better, you know? Yeah. And when you do that, you don't see like all of the work that, you know, was being done to maybe mitigate even more lives being lost. Yeah. Um, I really like, you know, we, we talked offline uh, just about sort of the living in a, a rural community and how that has a lot and it, it offers you different advantages than sort of like a solitary urban experience living in a high rise. Yeah. Right. Um, and whenever there's a disaster, you'll have the full spectrum of humanity and which did happen. You'll have some people trying to rip people off for money, you know, charging more to get people off the Gillies and things like that. Uh, but more so, and maybe it's like, it's less sexy news, right? To talk about like the good things that are happening, but more so like the, the human response was really great. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things that you did was you also set up uh, a GoFundMe account. Yes. How do you, for, you know, unfortunately these things will happen in the future. If someone's going to do that, like, how do you know then once you've set up the GoFundMe and you've gotten the donations, how do you know what to do with that money? So if that somebody, it's going to, like, even, like, you personally, like, you get this money through GoFundMe, where do I give it? Like, where is it going to have the greatest impact? Do I give it straight to the Red Cross? Do I bring it to a local community leader? Like, how do you make an impact with that money? Okay, if we're trying, if we're linking fundraising donations to a humanitarian emergency response. Yeah, you'll notice, you'll notice this is based around giant tangents that I go on. <laughs> specifically to an emergency response uh, cause, I think it's really important to do, do your research and find that this, okay, so when these, these things happen, like you would have seen, Tim, like amazing initiatives out there, right? So many NGOs going in, doing different things and chipping in, like, this is incredible. I feel like, and we talked about this offline as well, how when a disaster happens, it does show, it has a tendency to show some of the most beautiful sides of humanity, but also ugly as well. Um, but yeah, like for, in my experience, uh, I channel it all to the Red Cross because maybe because of my knowledge of disasters and understanding that the money should really go to... To, to professionals who know how to deal with that. You know what I mean? I mean, I read, I, I saw this really good video actually um, talking about the shootings in the US. Awful, awful, mm. you know, situations there. But donations that would go towards the aftermath of that and a natural disaster would be very different. Mm. Um, 
this this person was talking about how like after the shooting like they understood that people wanted to help and in their good nature they were sending like hundreds of teddy bears and that sort of stuff and it's like well mm, that's not really going to help you know what I mean and yeah. then yeah so it's same, it's the same thing that happened with the disaster in Aceh as well apparently like thousands of teddy bears got sent over it's just really? like, yeah and clothing and like loads of clothing and, and crazy enough like people were donating and sending like high heels and stuff too and like right. it's not useful you can't and eat you ended up you can't, can't eat, eat a teddy bear <laughs> you can't eat a teddy bear you can't eat, you can't eat one, one one shoe as well like right. one not even two <laughs> wow you know but this is it people want to help and they when the disaster happens i think it's a very very common uh mentality to have like people have lost everything so therefore we need to give them everything yeah in, the emer- in an emergency situation you need the most basic like life-saving things. People need shelter, people need food, people need clean water. So in Lombok, many of the water supplies were contaminated. Um, in the immediate aftermath of a disaster, often plastic bottles will be, will be sent in. And I think that's good. Environmentally, probably not so good, but for the immediate aftermath, I mean, that people need water and clean water. But then afterwards, what's really good to invest in and support are water filters, you know, like um, UNICEF, for instance, they have like large water bladders. And if you support organizations like the Red Cross, they already have their own established like disaster management response team. So for, for instance, within that first month, I saw the WASH team, the water hygiene and sanitation specialists, already fixing up pipes, already like putting down like bladders, like donated from UNICEF and... Yeah, like just water purification systems getting set up, pumping it out daily. Mm. Like this is the kind of thing that donations should really be going towards. Emergency shelter, water, sustainable water supplies for people. Because if you keep supplying like, you know, like package things going in, it's just going to pile up and it's going to cause its own disaster. You know what I mean? The after effects of its disaster. Yeah, of in course. In another form. Um, I think, yeah, like... Oh, what do you do? I mean, that's one of the dangers of... Uh, I've talked about this in, in some of my episodes uh, about Indonesia, but, like, yeah, there's... You know, there in areas of Indonesia, there is a waste management problem. Mm-hmm. And y- when a natural disaster strikes a place that already has a waste management problem and the disaster creates more waste, more like, waste. W- you know, it's just kind of sort of compounding the initial problem. Um, I think, like... And maybe this is a, a good way for us to bring this full circle, but this is like this is heavy work, um, yeah, both totally. b- both literally and um, m- metaphorically in a sense. Uh, you know, to I- I'm sure there's aspects of it that are really fulfilling, but then I'm sure also doing work in which you're frequently res- responding to disasters, you see a lot of people who are hurt and suffering. Yeah. Um, do you see yourself? Doing this forever? Um, who knows? Mm. I feel like this is just a start for me. And yeah, like going into Lombok, like I didn't even think twice if I had, I had the opportunity to join the team and help out with the psychosocial support there for children, you know, bring, putting, bring, bringing laughter and smiles back for the kids, to the kids to help their trauma healing process. Um, getting taught like the distribution, like procedures, doing some of the, the labor, like that's kind of labeled as like ma- a man's work. Like I'm happy doing all of that. Mm. 
breaking these stereotypes. I mean, yeah, like, it's hard seeing that for sure. And then I was getting these really nice messages from my friends and family, like, hey, make sure you take care of yourself and um, hope you're okay. And, and the weird thing is, we were all fine because it's very strange to try and describe something that was actually a very strange experience where there was so much catastrophe and destruction around us. People were living outside their homes. People who had homes were all of a sudden made into like homeless like people, you know, and in internally displaced camps. Um, some of them didn't have roofs over their heads or torp over their head, I should say. Even in the Red Cross camp, there is a the majority of people who were there on the ground with the Red Cross, they're volunteers. There's a massive movement of like this spirit of volunteerism here in Indonesia with the Red Cross movement and it's beautiful, you know? And, and if you ask me like, where were we sleeping? We were sleeping in tents, mm. clear from buildings, destruction. Did we all have tents? No, we didn't. You know, this is, some people were just sleeping on the ground, out in the open, in the cars. We did this, People were doing this weeks and weeks and weeks on end, and this is a project that's going going for next year. And people come in all over the country, from 34, 34 provinces, Red Cross. People come in with different languages and cultures, and they come in, come in for one course to help Lombok. Uh, maybe I'm going off on a tangent, but I think no, no. What, I'm, what I'm trying to highlight is like the spirit of volunteerism. And yeah, sure, it's hard to see everything and all of that, but at the same time, we provide our own psychosocial support to one another. Mm. There, is, there is a cheerfulness in this, in this environment. It's really strange to try and describe, but people can be happy. People, we, we laugh. We, when we come back to the camp, we have fun. We, we hang out. We get to know each other. We become friends. And you laugh, you joke, you help each other cook, you clean the camp, and then you go out in the field and you, it's tiring. It's so tiring. There's no day off, really. Mm. And it's just, but I am so like blown away by this movement. And, and I, I think the Red Cross movement globally has won my heart. Like these guys, they are really some, something to really look up to, seriously. There's a book I'll plug called Tribe by Sebastian Junger. And in it, he takes a historical approach to war and disaster. Yeah. And within that, talk about how when they talk to people who were involved in those things, that yeah, that sense of, again back to like that sense of community, Comradeship. yeah, actually gave people a more positive mindset than at times when they were living through peace. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe there's a little bit of that in there. For sure, I will in the show notes for this episode. I'll link to the Red Cross. Uh, I know things are ongoing in Lombok, so I'll link to maybe a way people can help there. And as soon as I mean, we could go through the Red Cross, like you were saying. Um, but if there's any other ways that people can help now with Sulawesi, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Kit, is there any... Do you want to plug a social media account? Like, if anyone wants to reach out to you about this in particular in the future, is that okay for people to do? Um, yeah, you can send an email to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, at gmail.com. Um, but people are interested and passionate about, you know mitigating the effects of disasters. I think it's really, really useful to look at programs, disaster risk reduction programs, to support those initiatives out there, because I think to promote 
and implement disaster risk reduction education for school children, mm. for communities. This is it. Like this is like you're going to work from the ground up and then also from the top down. Like it's one of those, like I said before, like this is, you got to, yeah, like for the sustainability of development, we need to start thinking about how to reduce the risk and impact on certain groups of people, right? I mean. Yeah. Uh, well, listen, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I know you got a big move coming up in just a day. So to, to give up an hour of your time, I really appreciate it. So thank, thank you. Thank you so much as well, Tim. It's been great. Thank Cheers. you. Cheers. That is it for episode number 78. Thank you to Kit for taking part in this conversation. And thanks to all of you Voyagers for tuning in. You can check out the show notes for this episode for all of that information about how to donate to the Red Cross or to other organizations that are helping out with the disaster relief in Sulawesi. You will also find in the show notes a link to Kit's Instagram account and a link to Kit's email address if you want to get into contact with her. As always, everybody, thank you for listening and please take care of each other.